The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 18th, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday on the show, I thanked Donald Trump for his contributions. Let's notch another one. His bonkers stance on repealing the 14th Amendment or just ignoring it really forcefully and seeing what happens, it flushed other candidates out of the weeds, like the one-time leader in Iowa, Scott Walker. Now, we are told that Donald Trump, the effect would be is that he would be sucking up the oxygen. But I say he made Walker commit to the opinion that I don't know if he has, but if he does, it could sink Walker nationally. It might help Iowa, where Walker once led, where immigration or illegal immigration is especially unpopular. Here is Scott Walker talking to Casey Hunt of MSNBC about the idea of birthright citizenship as guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. Do you think that birthright citizenship should be ended? You said well, like I said, Harry Reid said that's not right for this country. I think that's something we should, uh, yeah, absolutely, going forward. We, I think should, end, we should end birthright citizenship. Yeah, to me, it's about enforcing the laws in this country. And uh, again, I make it very clear. I think you enforce the laws. And I think it's important to send a message that we're going to enforce the laws no matter how people come here. We need to uphold the law in this country. Ending birthright citizenship is a bad idea. So bad, I'm not even sure Scott Walker knew what he was saying. Then again, it's not entirely unpopular among Republicans. As Sam Stein and Amanda Turkle in the HuffPo noted, a good chunk of the Republican field says they support this flat out. Jindal, Santorum, Trump, now Walker apparently does. Some like Christie says they want to re-examine the issue. Kasich, he opposes it. Jeb Bush is against it. But remember when Mitt Romney talked about self-deportation? It was seen as a terrible, stupid thing to say because it hurt Republicans with conservatives, damned him partially in the general election. So Reince Priebus, then and now head of the Republican National Committee, said, using the word self-deportation is a horrific comment to make. I don't think it has anything to do with our party. When someone makes those comments, obviously it hurts. Yeah, obviously. And you know what? Self-deportation is actually more humane than ending birthright citizenship. I think Scott Walker, if he sticks to this view, has just ended any hope he has of winning a general election. And for that, he, and maybe we, can thank Donald Trump. On the show today, I spiel about getting a job. But first, the adherents of ISIS from the West and the mothers they left behind. Every day there's another story in the news about the horrors of ISIS, and every other other day there's a story about a Westerner, an American, a kid, a deluded 20-something who goes and joins ISIS. Sometimes women do this. Sometimes or recently a married couple is said to have done this. How? Why? It seems like the sort of thing for which there is no answer, but as a good journalist, Julia Yaffe said, I gotta find out. So, for the uh, Huffington Post's imprint called Highline, she wrote a story, Mothers of ISIS. Their children abandoned them to join the worst terror organization on earth. Now all they have is each other. Hello, Julia. Hi, Mike. So I assume this is one of those stories where the motivation was just talking to yourself around the office, like, how does this happen? But how'd you figure out, let's go to the mothers? Well, actually, the way we thought about this story was, 
we, there's so many stories done in, or that have been done in the last year about the kids themselves, and they are often kids, who run off and join ISIS and how they were radicalized and how they got down there and what they did when they were down there. And we thought that there wasn't that much that focused on what they leave behind and the kinds of families they come from and what happens to those families once those kids are gone, what that relationship looks like and what happens to the family after the child is often killed in Syria. So at first we just thought that it would be, you know, we'd find some sad people and we found that, but the the layers of the story just kept getting deeper and deeper as I kept reporting. So what are the through lines among the families? One of the patterns we found, and this is consistent with what radicalization experts will tell you, is that among non-Muslim families where young man or woman converts to Islam, becomes radicalized and joins ISIS, father is often absent, is out of the picture. There's some kind of traumatic event, like a divorce or a death. There's issues of adjustment. A lot of the kids from Christian families that converted to Islam that I followed had issues with crime, with drugs. They had psychological issues. But more than anything, it was, you know, a desire for adventure. One one radicalization expert put it to me this way, that this is like being offered a chance to play in the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, it's the final battle. It's the final showdown. You get a chance to participate in the front lines. A lot of these kids aren't coming from poor families. These are middle-class families. They're not really wanting. They're going for a sense of adventure, for a sense of belonging, for a sense of mission and purpose that they often can't find in their regular lives for whatever reason. Well, the French Foreign Legion operates on such a principle, but the French Foreign Mm -hmm. Legion doesn't rape women as a matter of course and doesn't behead its victims. So there must be a tremendous amount of ignorance going on as well. This is what we mean when we say radicalized. The kids from Muslim families who are radicalized, the kids from Christian families who are radicalized in the West, often don't know that much about Islam. That is another through line. They don't know much about the religion. It must be said, like, the the kids I followed were not, they were not radicalized online. They were radicalized in person by somebody who offered them purpose and structure and meaning in a life that they felt lacked it. But because they don't have the background, they don't know what what is a misinterpretation of Islam and what isn't. You know, the Internet, radical mosques, radical recruiters, fill in the rest. We always hear that ISIS is so good at social media. But, you know, I always hear that first from some, like, 57-year-old ex-general who doesn't know what social media (laughs) is. Since you've been on it your whole life, does any of it actually impress you as sophisticated? Well... I don't know. I'm not an expert in that, and I haven't been on it my whole life. But this isn't really, this wasn't really the focus of my piece. What was interesting about the social media was how the mothers used it mm-hmm. once their kids left for Syria, and especially after their children were killed. They used social media to connect to fighters that may have known their child. We had one mother, for example, who in Copenhagen, who followed. If she saw somebody commenting on a photo of her son on Facebook, she would follow that person, follow all of that person's friends, and so on and so forth, because until her son died, she did not know that he was part of ISIS. And she realized there was this huge canvas of things she didn't know about her son that she had been very close to. That thought paralyzed her and made her grieve almost as much as her son's death itself. So... 
she started talking to these fighters and messaging with them through Facebook, through Twitter, through Viber, trying to piece together what her son had been a part of. One fighter, she asked, has my son beheaded anyone? So I've read your work for a long time, and you report a lot on Ukraine and Russia and a lot of international affairs and a lot of different things. But have you done a lot of work where you've dealt with uh, grieving parents? No, actually, I have not. And this was a difficult story to do. This was the first time in my, you know, 10 years doing journalism that I've cried doing an interview or cried writing a draft or reading a draft. I know that basically everybody who touched the story at Highline also cried. It was just a wrenching story to work on because so many of these women, you know, they didn't either didn't see it coming at all and were just are so consumed by the grief. They don't know what to do with themselves. A lot of them are trying to become activists and trying to force policy changes so that Governments work more closely with parents because they're the first line of defense, but the activism is destroying them. It's keeping their wounds open and and oozing. Every time they give an interview, they have to retell the story of the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And when you do that for a year, two years after your child has been killed in a pretty horrible way, you know, it wears you down. Their families are kind of coming apart at the seams it takes a big toll on their other children, on on their spouses or partners, grieving the child, the loss of the child, or the very specific grief of outliving a child. It just has so many more ramifications. Plus, there's the stigma, you know, their neighbors not talking to them or saying horrible things to them. It's just, you know, when you think it can't get any sadder, it does. For example, uh, the mother I interviewed in Norway after her, she found out that her son was killed. One daughter almost ran off with, you know, the head of the radical group in Norway that sent her brother off to die. And then a second sister married the spokesman of that group. You know, so it, it starts to consume the whole family. You have in the piece a Norwegian mom, a Dutch mom, a uh, Canadian mom. It is, if you look at the statistics, it's much, even though this is what makes the headlines here, it is much less of an American phenomenon. Why is that? America doesn't have proportionally as many Muslims as certain countries in Europe. And America generally does a better job of integrating immigrants than Europe does. You know, it's telling when waves of kids who were born, not only born in, let's say, Belgium or Norway, but were born to parents who were born in those countries, and they still feel isolated and alienated from the local culture because you have to go back to you know 19th century nationalism for these definitions of nationhood that are are very specific and very contingent on ethnicity i for example am an immigrant yeah i came to the us at the age of 7 my parents were 30 and they very quickly felt like americans we have family friends who emigrated from the soviet union around the same time to countries in europe and these are white Christians, and they say they still don't feel French or English, and that people around them constantly remind them that they're foreigners. So imagine how much worse it must be if you're Muslim and darker-skinned in, you know, let's say a Scandinavian country where everybody's light-skinned and blonde. So a couple days ago in the New York Times, there was a huge takeout about how ISIS has used rape in a lot of ways, but they've not only religiously justified it, they preach it to their adherents. 
couple days after that, or maybe even a day after that, it came out that I think a lot of us who were following this knew was true that Kayla Mueller, the U.S. aid worker, was was repeatedly sexually assaulted. But a couple days ago, there's this big article in the Times, again, about how ISIS is using some crazy version of girl power uh, to entice young women fighters. I don't know, pick up a gun or whatever. So I guess my question is, can those earlier stories, the well-documented, horrific tales of rape, actually, will they change anyone's mind? Will the people who are being tricked into joining ISIS, young girls in some instances, will they be put off by these acts of journalism chronicling what ISIS really does? So I think it's complicated. I think for the young women who are radicalized and join ISIS, for a lot of them, it's out of religious conviction. It's also a longing for adventure. A lot of the girls who go who are from Muslim families are going to escape very stringent parental control. At the same time, they want these traditional things. They want to get married. They want to have children. And ISIS offers all of that to them. Plus, you know, girl power, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to answer to your strict mom and dad about where you can go or who you can marry. At the same time, these girls are Muslim. Kayla Mueller wasn't a Muslim. The Yazidis aren't Muslim. Like, there's a very fine parsing that happens that, you know, if you're radicalized, you have a very simple view of things, and you make reality fit. At the same time, I've heard stories of young women joining ISIS and then finding that they're passed around as comfort women, essentially, among the ISIS fighters, and some of them have escaped and gone back to Europe, one of them uh, pregnant. But I think it's a, in their minds, I'm, you know, I'm speculating, but I'm wondering if it's a, you know, that's what happens to the infidels and the unbelievers, and that's fine because it's religiously justified. But we're not that. We're uh, religious, we're loyal, we believe in the cause, and we want to go and make babies, you know, who will grow up to fight for ISIS. This article was a great exercise in empathy, but if you gleaned anything that could be actionable, either someone in the military or wanting to fight ISIS or a parent wanting to prevent this, would there be anything? Well, I think this is what the mothers are focusing on, you know, using their grief and their, you know, they're eating themselves alive asking themselves over and over again, you know, what could I have done differently? What if I did this and not this or that and not that? A lot of times they're finding it was difficult to do. We had a mother who called the Norwegian intelligence services three times and they didn't do anything. I mean, they came to her themselves and said, we're watching your son and we're afraid he's going to go to Syria, but he was able to get a passport and leave the country. Another mother Her son was a minor. He was 17 years old. She destroyed his passport, called the Danish authorities, made sure his file was flagged so that he wouldn't get another passport. Within four months, he was in Syria. He had forged uh, his father's signature on the parental consent form. You know, I'm wary of giving advice because, you know, even the mothers who saw what was happening weren't able to stop their kids. One thing that the radicalization experts will tell you is if your child converts to Islam or is already Muslim and starting to become more, like, starting to go down this path, to not push them away. So often fathers have a more aggressive response to their kids than their mothers. They'll take away the kid's Quran or their prayer rug. They'll ban them from doing this or, like, 
One mother, for example, insisted on having wine on the table, even though it bothered her newly Muslim son because she wanted to emphasize that they were a mixed family and they had to accommodate each other. But, you know, trying not to to be smart about how you handle your child's conversion or growing devotion or radicalization, not pushing them away and fighting with them where they have to turn to other, perhaps more nefarious sources for comfort and understanding. Julia Yaffe has written Mothers of Isis for Highline, which is part of the Huffington Post. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. You know the feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of your mouse, a feeling that your grandfather must have felt. Well, I'm going to give you a more convenient feeling than that, so Grandpa will be jealous. It's Stamps.com. You can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk because Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes and is better air conditioned and has throw pillows that you chose. So talk about convenience. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter and package using your computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mailman or drop it in a mailbox and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Who knows? They may have gotten better throw pillows since you last been there. Right now, use my promo code the gist for a special offer it's a four-week trial it's a hundred ten dollar bonus offer it includes a digital scale free calculates your exact postage for letters and packages and up to 55 dollars in free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in the gist that's stamps.com enter the gist And now the spiel. Good job. My favorite book of the Bible is the book of Job. It really is horrible. In it, they say of Job, in the land of Uz, there lived a man named Job. He was blameless and upright, one who revered God and avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 asses, and he had many servants, so that he was the richest man among all the peoples of the East. Now, they say you could take the man out of ooze, but you can't take the ooze out of the man. But wow, did Satan try. He tested Job, but Job did not lose his faith. Job still oozed faith, I guess you could say. And what did they do to him? Man, they burned his crops. They killed his sons. They destroyed his animals. They killed his servants. Which, by the way, is bad for Job, but it's worse for the servants, wouldn't you say? Bible ain't the Zen reader. You know what I'm saying? On with the travails. Job is given leprosy. He's plagued with boils. He's banished. He's becursed with intermittent Wi-Fi. He signed up for the Columbia House Record Club, but it doesn't allow him a way back, a way to back out of the contract, a CD every month. It's unbelievable. He's given a rash so severe, the good book says, quote, Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. But Job had faith, still had faith, which brings me to the equivalent in modern politics. It's not the book of Job, but Jobs. And man, no matter what happens, do we have faith in Jobs. Now, this morning, we learned that our businesses created another 223,000 jobs last month. And you know what? There are millions of jobs waiting for us. During my eight years, 1.3 million jobs were created. Yeah, we more than made up for the jobs that were lost during the recession. We must also create an American jobs agenda to build a new, clean, green, renewable energy future for our children's and grandchildren's sake. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. I tell you that. 
Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, Hillary Rodham, Clinton, Martin O'Malley, President Obama. They're all saying jobs bring dignity, jobs bring worth. The consensus was the entire last election would swing on job creation. Every month in 2008, the jobs report came out and it was poured over and it was good. Obama was happy. And if it was bad, the Mitt Romney people pounced. Now, sometimes politicians will go beyond just saying, I will create jobs. They will acknowledge that good paying jobs are better than just stocking the shelves at a dollar store. They might even talk about things like this. And we need to improve higher education so that people can have access to the skills they need for 21st century jobs. Which means investing in basic research and development that leads to new businesses and industries. I'll bring back our jobs from China, from Mexico, from Japan, from so many places. I'll bring back our jobs and I'll bring back our money. Donald Trump, Obama, Rubio, the good paying jobs, the 21st century jobs. We have faith in jobs, skill instilling jobs. We have faith in the power of a president to bring us the good jobs. And once the good jobs are brought, we will be healed. So what's a really good job? What's one of the best jobs you could get? Why, if you're good enough, you could work for Amazon. And guess what? Your life will suck. Amazon, high-tech, innovative. This week, it just passed Walmart as America's largest retailer by market value. Well, it turns out in service to getting you your toilet paper in two days, not three, Amazon is leaving a trail of white-collar professionals in sobbing puddles at their desks. It's like the baton death march of middle managers with many men and women lost to plagues of locusts, darkness, and performance review evaluations. Also, apparently at Amazon, cancer is a sort of cancer. As the New York Times exposed, there are a couple instances of employees who are battling cancer being given demerits because they are battling cancer. I tried to figure out the legality of this tactic, but the book on workplace rights has not yet arrived since I ordered it on Sunday, so I can't tell you. But it's been two business days. I want my damn book. I'm going to send out an angry email because, damn it, I need some socially conscious reading material for the hour I have scheduled for my $8 pedicure. Okay, back to Amazon. I thought the horror stories were interesting, but one point I haven't seen raised has to do with an idea that this article pursues, that Amazon.com culture differs from, say, Google culture or Facebook culture because they have different attitudes towards workplace harmony. Jeff Bezos, Amazon's founder and the world's fifth richest human, thinks harmony is overrated. The New York Times quotes Amazon's VP of Human Resources saying, we always want to arrive at the right answer. And I think this partly tells you why Amazon is brutal and Google has a free healthy snack bar. With places like Google or Facebook or other successful tech companies, some types of tech companies, there's no right answer. Those businesses are based around divergent thinking. Yes, 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 the algorithm has to work. There are better ways to run a search engine and worse ways. But mostly, Google thinking is about creative ways to create things, whereas Amazon thinking is possibly creative ways to solve things, solve problems. Amazon is mostly about taking a physical product, a thing, and getting that thing to the consumer in the quickest amount of time. So every minute that can be shaved off that process is a version of the right answer. And there are questions of storage and procurement and supply chain. But all those things exist on a continuum of 
bad to best. Facebook isn't exactly like that. Now, some parts of Amazon's business, like Kindle and Amazon's instant video, they're also a little more divergent. But if you're in a business where success can be measured in time saved, some manager is always going to be pressuring you to save more time. That aside, what it really shows about jobs is that jobs shouldn't be the goal of human existence or political policy. That, by the way, the politics part is kind of lucky since even though politicians will tell you they're going to create jobs, they really can't. It just happens, mostly independent of the things they do. Maybe a conservative-type person, a libertarian-type person, would tell you that jobs not being the be-all, end-all, what it really means is that government can't provide you with worth or satisfaction. Don't look to government for happiness. Maybe so. Maybe a liberal would say government shouldn't focus just on a job. They should consider the part that a job plays in the citizenry's overall wellness. I can't tell you which is right. That is not my job. As for Job, remember that guy? Well, here's how his story ends. He confronts God. He demands a hearing. He demands an explanation. He's not really given one. He's just told to trust God's wisdom. And finally, Job concedes, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'm not sure what this means, but I do know that Warren Haynes' EP, Dust and Ashes, can be ordered on Amazon, $13.49 as an MP3, or $14.89 as an audio CD, by Wednesday via Amazon Prime. Also, Dustless Technologies' A1001 Bobcat Ash Separator, black, but watch out, because as reviewer Kevin notes, I didn't notice until I opened the box, but this vacuum does not vacuum. It's a ripoff. You have to use your home vacuum with it to make it work. You can buy a complete unit for less money. Don't worry, Kevin. Someone's going to be working weekends to resolve your problem. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, really did not notice that this was not motorized. She'll keep it, but it's a pain to have two canisters instead of one. Just managing producer Joel Meyer was considering this because it is made in the USA, then kept reading the description. It's basically an oversized filter for your vacuum. Come on, I know America can make a quality product that I'm willing to pay a little more for, but this isn't it. Executive producer Andy Bowers agrees with the five-star review labeled, duh. All the people who gave this a bad rating and said they didn't know this didn't have a motor are morons. Read a description. Works just as it should. The gist. Not morons. We work just as we should. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit si.com slash podcasts for more info.